The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So we're going to jump right into Genesis because I know that this is like, we're all kind of like, this is a really exciting chapter. This is the beginning of the Bible. There's a lot to go on here. Maybe you've got a few like controversies about the Genesis chapter that you're interested in and you want to talk through. Um, I'm very excited about this, this chapter and this book, partly because it lays out a blueprint for who God is and how he's created the world that is really absolutely enthralling and exciting to see. Um, here we have, in the beginning in Genesis 1, the blueprints of how God has made the world. And what, we, what I would say is, this is how God has made the world to be a place of joy. Like you, you, as we read through it, that's kind of one of those taglines we pick up over and over again. It was good. It was good. God saw that it was good. Over and over again, God's enjoyment of creation is one of the primary things that we see here in Genesis 1. So here's the main idea, and I want to answer a few questions before we get into the passage. The main idea for uh, our sermon this morning is that God's good design invites us into his joy. That's, that's kind of what we're saying Genesis 1 is all about. God's good design of the world, God's good design of creation invites us into his joy. We see over and over again through this chapter how God has designed this, how God has designed his creation for us to enjoy it with him. Now, before we get too far, I want just to make the comment that we are going to be doing Q&A after the sermon, so you can send those questions right up to me on, on this text number, and we'll get into those. So one of the initial questions that I, I want to just kind of get out of the way, address, is all right, Genesis 1, we know this is all about like how God made the world. Is this like a literal seven days? What's, what is the, how old is this place anyways? Let's just kind of like address that question. There's three main positions that Christians have largely held through the history of the church. There's been uh, the seven day literal creation. So when it says first day, second day, third day, those are all literal 24 hour days. You pack those together. Lo and behold, you've got seven days of the work week. God gets all, gets all his work done. He takes Saturday off. That's the way it's, it's literal, just a regular the way we would have today a calendar day. That's, you might call that young earth creation. So crea- creation is literally seven days and not and add to it that the earth is not as old as it seems is basically the position of young earth creationism that 10,000 years or so is back when this happened, give or take um, a few, few years here or there. Old Earth creationism is a second position that would look at this a text. Um, it would look at the at the uh, the week and say probably a literal week, but when it happened is kind of up to debate. It, it leans and says science tells us millions, billions of years, and when they look at the passage, they'll say something along the lines of, well, between verses two and three, so verse two, verse one and two is when God says general statement, God made everything. And then verse 3 is where God gets into the work of creation. They'll say, well, there might be a pause there where you can account for the millions and billions of years of creation. Or they'll look at chapter 2, verses between verses 3 and 4, and they'll say, well, literal creation, billions and billions of years ago, and then between chapter 2, verse 3, and chapter 2, verse 4, that's where all those years happen. Not a big deal. And the reason they say that is because when we get to chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations. That's when the Bible starts in, in the older creation position. 
that's when the Bible starts accounting for the history of mankind or the history of humanity because these are the generations happens seven times through the book of Genesis. There's seven accounts of gen uh, generations that kind of like begin like chapter markers, so to speak. And so there's, their position is largely, well, everything before the generations is kind of like, it's not specifically tied down to a year. That's the older creation position. Uh, another position would be the framework position that basically looks at this and says, the chapter one isn't really tied to a specific time period of when it happened. It's more of setting up the, the structure of how God created things. And so the, the question of Genesis one isn't even about when did this happen? Um, so I really don't think that uh, answering that question changes much of how we read Genesis one. I don't think that it really, uh, I don't think it's the, the point of the passage to say the Bible, the, the world is 10,000 years old or a million or a billion years old. The original purpose of Genesis, like we talked about last week, was to invite God's people into seeing who God was, who God is, on his own terms, in contrast to the Egyptian God of the day. So this is not going to be a test of orthodoxy, whether you're in or out of the household of God. You want to believe this is a literal seven days, happened 10,000 years ago, that's fine. You want to be, believe old earth Christianism, this happened billions of years ago, but it was a literal seven days or whatever, that's fine. You want to be a, uh, the guy, the perspective of like the framework, like this is really just about what God designed, not even about that question of how old it is. That's really okay. I think there's a few things that we can kind of lean on and say, this chapter one is really about who God is and who we are. And then all the other stuff, it's in-house discussion. Like it's not a test of whether you're in Jesus or not. So if you want to know my position, um, I can tell you after the service, but it's probably not that hard to guess. Um, I do think one book that I would put on your radar, if you have like some serious questions about this stuff, um, again, just going to give away my position on, on this. Uh, in the beginning, we misunderstood uh, interpreting Genesis 1 in its original context by John Miller, Johnny Miller, and John Soden. Um, they're both professors. Uh, one of them is a professor at Lancaster Bible College, and one of them is at Columbia International University. Um, they're both, uh, it's a really accessible, very accessible book in understanding a lot of kind of the things I've been mentioning both in these sermons and then a few months ago when we preached with Genesis 1. What was, what was Genesis dealing with when you have a bunch of refugees out of enslavement from the, from the country of Egypt? Like that's the context of Genesis. This really gets into that. I found it very helpful. We're going to move on because <laughs> I don't think that we want to spend a lot of time engaging with that stuff. What we want to look at is regardless of which position you take, when we look at the text of Genesis, we can all benefit from what this book is attempting to tell us about God, his joy in creating, and how we fit into that whole picture. So, are you guys cool with that? If you want to, like, peg me down on questions, you can do it in the Q&A. It'll be fun. So the main point of what we're looking at this morning, God's good design of the world invites us into his joy. And what, so the, that answers the question, what is God building in Genesis 1 and why? So we're going to look at the seven days of creation. What we're going to do is we're going to take Laura through the first five and a half days and throw them under one point. It's basically from creation of everything up until God makes animals. Then we're going to take Gen day six and talk about what does it mean to be people creating the image of God, and then we're going to look at the seventh day, God's Sabbath. So, 
verse 1, chapter 1, we're going to pick up with the place of joy. So what I want to do is show you the pattern that gets used for describing each day of the week, and then we're going to kind of swing through, break down the week, and then read through the passage with a few comments. So here's the next slide is the process of every day. Each day generally has this process in view. Can we go to the next slide? There's an announcement, there's a commandment, there's a separation, a report, naming, evaluation, and then a chronological framework. I know that's kind of like big words, like, okay, then we're gonna get a list this morning. But here's, let me show you Genesis 1, verses three to five on day one. And God said, there is the announcement. God sets up on the stage, and God said, let there be light. So that's the commandment. God says, let there be, fill in the blank. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, God's evaluation. And he separated the light from the darkness. Right, so there's that separation happening. I don't think I put that in there, did I? I forgot to put that in there. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So again, here's God naming. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day, the chronological framework. So here's these seven things that are happening in each of the days. And you're going to notice as we kind of swing back through and read through the days, some of the days have all seven things of these things happening. God said, it happens, God separates, God calls it good, God names it, end of the day. But some of the days, they drop out one of those things for one reason or another. We'll kind of talk about that a little bit. So that's kind of like the way in which each day happens. Now, let's go to the next slide over because this is kind of the general framework of each of the days. Uh, this is copy and paste straight out of Bruce Walton's Genesis commentary. Um, that's why there's those uh, verses, who and Bohu, that I don't know the Hebrew words for. Um, but each, the, the creation week is basically split up into two sections. You have the first three days and the second three days. You have what's the first three days, you have the creation of light, what's called the firmament, so that's the skies and the seas, the dry land and vegetation. That's the form of things. You might call this like day one through three, God's drawing the outline of his creation. And then you have the second three days, what fills or uses the outlines. So, God, if you're using the blueprint metaphor, you have the piping and the wiring, right? God sets out the structure of the day, and there is a structure of inspiration in days one through three, and then days three through, or four through six, God fills in, he colors in the lines of what he's just created. So, here we have, right, day one, for example, God creates light, but it isn't until day four that God creates the lights, stars, moon, and sun. Same thing happens, right? God creates the firmament, right? The sun, the sky, and the seas, but he doesn't actually give them any boundaries until day four, where he creates the land, and then by having the land in place, he has the boundaries for the sea and the oceans and all that stuff. So this is kind of like the general framework of how God creates the world. So what I want to do is I want to read through this creation account, and I want to make a few comments, and some of these will just be directed to the original context, but help us to understand a little bit of what's going on here in the Genesis account, but also to see that there's some things here that are just kind of funny in how God writes this, so that, like, 
Remember how we talked about when we um, last week when I mentioned it, but then we preached through Exodus a few years ago. God, God, when we, we think about like an Exodus story, like Pharaoh, the big baddie of Exodus, we don't know his name. It's just his title. So there's like these little things that God does along the way just to kind of like poke at the Egyptian gods. So Genesis 1, we're going to pick up here. We just read through uh, first, the first day. So we're just going to pick up here, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Now, if you remember... When we talk about this, this is, a, this is a reference to Egyptian mythology where their entire understanding of the world is that basically God created, the gods created stuff in the middle of a water expanse and separated the waters in the middle of this water expanse and created uh, what would become the temple of uh, Pharaoh and all that stuff. But what's interesting here is, and God called the heaven expanse and there was an evening and there was morning the second day. Now in the Hebrew, the second day, there's actually no V. It's just A. For the first five days of creation, there is no V. It's basically a second day. It, it's a general term. It's not even a, a definitive like the first day, the second day, the third day. In the Hebrew, it is very much a day, a day, a day. The only times that V gets used is days six and seven, where humanity gets created and then God takes a rest day off. I think that's important for understanding this may not actually be a chronological description of things. It is a categorical description of how God created things. But, the, but when it comes to the categories of humanity and God's Sabbath, then God cares about being very specific. Otherwise, it could be an indication. There's not an indication of chronological order. And God said, let the waters be under the heavens and be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, again, in Egyptian mythology, uh, the, heaven, uh, the earth comes up out of the waters almost like a pyramid, right? The pyramid idea comes from the same idea of like waters coming out or land coming out of the waters create a temple where God, the gods dwell. And it was so, and God gathered together the dry land and the waters were gathered together that he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, Fruit trees bearing fruit in which it is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And the earth brought forth vegetations, plant yielding seeds according to their own kinds. Trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. It's interesting to me that as God creates the world, he creates a world in which it is itself able to continue to fulfill and, f and flourish and expand the goodness that God created. It doesn't depend on a little God to kind of like, all right, we need to appeal to the fruit gods in order to get fruits. Like God creates the world in immediate dependence upon him, but it's able to fill out and expand and grow. And then here's one of those places we're going to drop in on just real quick. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse in the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater lights to rule the day and the lesser lights to rule the, star, rule the night and the stars. And God set them in their expanse in the heavens to give light to the earth. So that they would rule over the day and over the night to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning the fourth day. Now I want to pause here and reflect on this. First of all, 
You have to remember, in Egyptian mythology, the sun was a big deal. Ra had, you know, Ra, the, the name of the god of the sun, everything had its own name. The sun was the big deal. And did you notice? God has stopped naming things here in, in day four. He doesn't give the name for the sun or the moon. For God, for the Egyptians, the moon and the stars and the sun all ruled everything. It was a really big deal, right? Like the stars determined your future. The sun determined whether you got fed or not. And for God, when he's telling them the story, he's basically kind of like, that big light over there, those little lights in the sky, and that little light at night, all mine. It, it's almost as though God is just kind of flicking their Egyptian theology and just kind of saying like, they are not a big deal. I'm the big cheese in town. Those things, I, they, they answer to me. I own them. They're like a light switch. I turn them on, they turn them off. They're, they're not a big deal to God. And he's just undermining slowly both the Egyptian worship of the God, of, of the sun God, but also like, I mean, I just think, I know I've said this several times, this is one of the, my favorite throwaway phrases, phrases in the Bible, right? A hundred billion trillion stars in the sky. And God just says, and the stars. I created all of them. Right, we look at M83, these galaxies, and we look at these, these, these huge stars and nebulas and all this stuff, and it's just kind of like, eh, not a big deal. Made them, I did that. <laughs> you know, so God is intentionally just trying to show both, I made all that stuff, but again, to draw attention back to who is this God who made all this stuff? And you'll notice in day four, not only does he stop naming both the sun and the sky, but he doesn't name anything else for the rest of the creation story. That is because you'll notice that basically everything up to this point has been like the things that God takes care of. But then when we get to the, when we talk about when God gives, creates humanity, over in verse 29, uh, when God gives everything over to humanity, he says, right, and behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the earth and etc." What does Adam do then in Genesis 2? Adam's going through naming all the animals, and those are the domain of humanity, where we name and we control and we steward and all that stuff. God stops naming all these things because he's like, I'm, I'm not going to name them because you guys are going to do this. You guys are going to jump in and help me with my creation. So you're, you're already giving a picture. God enjoys what he's made. He likes it. He loves it. But he's already carving out a space for our existence alongside him in creation order. So... We're going to pick up here. I, I can kind of go off on these things, but verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above and across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures. Again, here's in Egyptian mythology, they would have had these huge sea creatures that were very scary. And again, here's just another thing. These are in God's fish tank, right? These are God's things. They just, they answer to God and they are, they're named, they're acknowledged, but they're not a big deal. Every living creature that moves which, um, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth of the sea. Uh, the birds multiply the earth, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And then we'll hear the last few verses. And God said that the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, living stock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps in the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So, 
we've kind of commented through as we've read through this passage, and you're hopefully beginning to see, as we hear, end here, right, at the end of verse 25, this is the big note all through this, and God saw that it was good. It was good because God saw it, God created it, and he liked it. That God likes what he's made, and all along through this, God has been telling us, I'm better than those Egyptian gods and their story of how they got all this stuff here. I am nonplussed. I don't have to fight against the powers of darkness. I don't have to fight against any gods. I don't have to fight to be the king of the hill. I made it all. I named it all. I rule it all. Period. At the heart of the universe, at the heart of existence, is this picture of a god who is in one day after another orderly creating. He's nonplussed. He's enjoying it. He likes what he's done. Imagine, like, for you, your perfect work week, where you have no problem meetings, right? You have nothing that comes and, like, a, you know, disrupts your flow of how you, you wanted to do your work week, right? For some of us, your child care doesn't fall through or something like that. Everything goes according to plan, and you just create, and it happens. That's what God is doing here. He has nobody to object to him. He has nothing to fight against. He is doing this. He's creating it because he enjoys it. Right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Because we have a happy God who likes to create, who enjoys what he's made. Right? That's, that's the main picture here, right? At the heart of the universe is not like these Marvel characters who are battling for supremacy or an expanse of nothingness that just sucks everything in to a dry, cold, dark, black hole. None of that at the heart of the universe is a God who enjoys what he's made, right? This is like whenever you have your friends, if you like, if you have a friend who like nerds out on stuff and you're like, hey, can you, can you tell me everything you know? Like, why do you like woodworking? Or why do you like, you know, why do you like this band? Or why do you like, for example, in our small group, like, we've all kind of basically become like Taylor Swift. Like disciples. <laughs> but like like if you like if you poke on something that somebody enjoys, they just like start like rattling things off and they start going off and like, well they had this thing going on and then this thing happened and then this thing happened. That's basically what's happening here in Genesis. God's saying, I love this place so much. Let me tell you how I did this. And I enjoyed step one and I enjoyed step two and I enjoyed step three and I made all of this stuff. I made it all to share. Because right? that's what we get to. We've got up right here in the middle of day five. Up to this point, everything that God's made has no conscious relationship with the creator. They certainly understand, you know, one way or the other, God's there, God's made stuff, blah, blah, blah. But nobody up to this point has been able to articulate the very words that we're saying right now. God exists. God's created stuff, and he likes it. Nobody up to this point... But God enjoys what he's made. So let's drop down here into verse 26. We've kind of alluded to this at this point. We've talked about the place of joy. Let's talk about the people of joy. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after, the like, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock of all the earth and everything creating and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him, male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and every cre- everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that he, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Here again we find this day that is the, this is the definitive day. This is a day that is very important to God. It is the moment, this is the big reveal, like if you think about like in your, if you've watched a movie and there's like the big reveal or reading a story and it's like, Oh, the big reveal. The big reveal is this moment where God creates something in his own image. And what he does is he creates humanity, male and female. He has created us to be little miniature gods. We talked about this a few months ago when we um, talked about the image of God. We're going to talk about it a little bit next week. Babbing's little phrase, micro-divine beings. Like, in all of our humanity, everything about us is, is created so that we exhibit and communicate what God is like, Right? We have hands because God carries us. We have eyes because God sees. We have a voice because God speaks. Right? We exist in a very particular way, distinct from the rest of creation, because we are created to image uh, and reveal what God is like and communicate with him. And you'll notice, verse 27, male and female, he created them. Right? This is saying men and women are given equal image of God. They bear the image of God equally. And I know the Bible gets banged on for saying like, oh, like it's, it's a, an oppressive image of women and all this stuff. I don't think that's a faithful reading of the Bible. I think that if you read the Bible in its original context, this is a startling statement. Great. Remember the original context. These people have are refugees who just walked through a river that made, was made dry land by their God to stand in a mountain and receive their new identity and they've just watched the king that oppressed them die in the river. In the ancient world, only the king was told, was said to bear the image of the gods. The king who occupied a position of power and authority was the only one who was said to be in the image of Ra, so to speak. And here, God says to his collective, you know, a million and a half refugees, every single one of you was made in my image, equally, man, woman, made in my image. You realize like how radical a statement this was to be pronounced, what, 7,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, however long ago, long ago this happened. Here, God is saying, I made everybody, human, male, female, equally in my image, right? So this, for our week ahead, there's two invitations here. Every person that you engage with, whoever they are, tall, short, strong, weak, male, female, old, young, mentally strong, mentally handicapped, whoever they are, they bear the image of the maker. They walk, live, exist in the image of God. There is a reverence and respect that we owe every person 
Even the person in HR that you don't like really gives you a hard time. These people are, the, are made and bear the image of God. This is, if we're trying to find like, what's the root of when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the root. Because your maker has made them too. They bear the image of the one who made you. They are created to live in an existence like God, and now we're going to get into the fall and how that screws everything up. And of course, we're all weak and sinners and all that stuff. But at the heart of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself is this very invitation. They bear the image of your God. Of your God. Second invitation is that God has created us to be people who enjoy his creation with us, with him. You notice here in verse 28 to 31, basically, God is saying, I've made all this stuff, and now I want you to rule it with me, right? It's, God, God is so excited about all these good things, and it's not very good until God creates humanity, man and woman, to then stand beside him and rule over creation, right? It's not very good until we're in the picture ruling just like the little miniature tiny gods over this creation with God, stewarding the very stuff that God enjoys. It's kind of like, so for example, um, some of you are aware I have a home gym at my house and on the wall in my garage, I have all these pictures of, it's like my happy place, like I put all like the things that I like and make, make me happy up on the wall. I will like print out posters, so like I recently printed out uh, an Endgame Marvel, and thank you guys, probably tell I like the Marvel movies. Endgame, I like, I pick it out, I print it, I put it in the picture frame, and then I ask one of my sons, I want you to tell me where this is going to go. Like, tell me how we're going to enjoy this together, or where is this going to go on the wall? Right? That's kind of like what God is doing with the creation story. He's saying, I've created all this stuff. Now, I want you to, you can name it. And we'll kind of rule over it, but I've made it. So let's enjoy this together. That's Whatever it is that God is leading you into this week, you are being invited into alongside your creator to help him rule over stuff. Right? That's not to dominate, that's not to suppress, but it is to enjoy. God's made stuff, right? Whatever it is, the finances or graphic design, or I'm trying to think of like, you know, take caring for kids or building websites or creating systems or whatever it is, there is something to steward and enjoy that God's made for you this week. And you get to do it beside a God who's happy about it. I think that changes how we engage our work and our vocation and the things we do. All right. We're going to end here on the Sabbath. You guys cool? And then we're going to turn to Q&A. Is that cool with you guys? All right. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. We've talked about the place, the people. And now we're going to talk about the presence of joy. And we're just going to touch on this quickly. I'd like to say more about this, but... The presence of joy, verses 1 to 3, chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Again, just to speak to the context of all these refugees who've come out of Egypt. Nobody, no gods in the ancient world rested. They always had to fight and grind out their, their reign. And that's actually why people were created, was to help them grind out what it means to be a god. Here, 
God is so filled with joy at being who he is and the creation he's made. He takes a whole day off. This is unheard of in all the ancient mythologies. None of the gods took a day off. Here, God sits back. It's like, it's a difference between, you mow, if you like mow your yard, and you're kind of like, ah, and you go inside. Or if you mow your yard, then you have a barbecue and have a friend. Here, God, so to speak, mowed his yard and has all his friends over to enjoy it with him. He so enjoys creation. He's like, let's not get past this. Let's not get over this too quickly. Let's take this in and enjoy it. Let's enjoy what this moment means, right? Here, and in fact, God has, if you've ever climbed any of the mountains here in New Hampshire, you get up to the top and you don't just kind of like say like, well, I climbed Mount Lafayette, but it was frigid at the top. So like I stood for like five seconds, was like, Hey, and then kept going because I thought I was going to die. This is God climbing the mountain saying, I enjoy all of this. Let's hang out and just enjoy this for a moment. That's what the Sabbath is for us. God creates this pattern of a seventh day where he wants to take it all in. How do we then take in what it means? How does this change our rhythm for the week? Right? What does it mean for us to look at the week that we've enjoyed? not enjoyed, that we've experienced. And try to find some sort of presence of God and meaning in it. I think what it means is, there's several things about what it means to take in the Sabbath, but it largely means stopping from the things we normally do every other day of the week. To experience whatever your day of Sabbath is as being separate and different. And doing things that help you to take in the meaning of what you've enjoyed. Is experience and see that God's at work and that you get to enjoy the activity of, his, of the week behind you or ahead of you. I'll speak a little bit of this because I really want to get to our Q&A. Um, I think these are good questions to talk through with your small group. We don't do Sabbath well. I would just say, personally, I don't, do, I don't take Sabbath rest. I don't understand how to do it well. We don't live in a culture because... Dude, like Amazon delivered a package at my house at four o'clock in the morning this week. Like there's no regular rhythms at all. Like nobody takes like the same day off anymore. So it's very hard for us in our context right now to have everybody understands we're all taking this day off. So we have to work at it. So I would say, here's a few guidelines and then we can again uh, speak into this more. How can we make one day, which is probably a weekend, whatever your day off is, different from all the other days so that you can be refreshed with the meaning of this past week and enjoy what God has done. Uh, obviously, for each of us, work is going to be different, whether you're, you're a stay-at-home parent or you work full-time out of the house, that's going to look different. Um, I think there's three categories to consider in, in crafting a, a refreshing Sabbath. Silence, recreation, and beauty. Silence is this worship of God and enjoying of who he is. That's what God's pattern is through the rest of the Bible for Sabbath. Right? That's why we gather together on a, on a Sunday morning to worship. But it's also in terms of our own personal life to, to pause before God and receive from him. How can you give some specific time to considering what God has done in your life this past week? And I would point back to a sermon from a couple weeks ago when Peter was guiding us through his practice of like the pausing and, and considering uh, Bible verse through the week or whatever, and how he did that. 
I'm trying to do that as a way of pausing and seeing what has God done in my week. Recreation. Uh, obviously, we don't want to. I, I don't think that it's like extraordinarily helpful to get like into like overly competitive things and can kind of rile some of us up and get feelings hurt and all that stuff. If you ever played a board game with me, you know um, this is not a good idea for me to do a competitive board game on my staff. I think I've gotten better, but what is something that you can do and enjoy? Physical activity, you know, running around, going on a hike, um, playing like we've done in the summer, right? Ultimate Frisbee on a Sunday afternoon, something like that. A recreation activity that you enjoy and helps you just feel like, I want to be a human being, right? And then something along the lines of beauty, right? Is there some beautiful thing going on a scenic hike, art, you know, right? You got the Courier Museum, um, concerts, those are the sort of things that you can enjoy. This is going to look different for everybody, but we, I think it is critical that here in the foundational reality, what's the blueprint of creation? God sets a whole day to stepping back and saying he wants us to take in and enjoy. He's created us so that we are just like God. We, want it, we, we find meaning and fulfillment in receiving and enjoying the world that God's created for us. All right, let's pray, and then we're going to jump in to do some Q&A, okay? God, as we've worked through this passage and considered what it means to be in a world created by you, God, I pray that we would be enlivened and filled by your spirit to enjoy the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.